What's up, everyone? This is episode number 88 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, as you guys know, this is an election week. And um, as I'm recording this, we're still waiting for the results. Everyone's a little wound up right now. It's a very important week in the United States, but I think we need some healthy distractions, right? So let's take the next, I don't know how long this is going to take, 30 or 40 minutes and have some fun. And for me, of course, that involves talking about cards. Um, I've been wanting to do a 2005-2006 Tops episode for a long time now, but as you guys know, the hobby is very busy and there have been a lot of topics to cover. Now, things have finally slowed down a bit, and I got an awesome 2005 PC card in the mail this week, so the timing just seemed right. And that's where I'm going to start things off today, and then I plan to give a rundown of one of the more interesting years in Topps history. Okay, so as you guys know, I like jumbo patches a lot, and my favorite patch product of all time was an often forgotten product from 2005 called Topps Big Game. And I'll talk a lot more about this product later in the episode, but I consider it to be a precursor to 2012 Panini Immaculate. And my guy, my PC guy, Ron Artest, was in this product. And I actually talked about tracking down the source material for his patch cards from this product in episode 59. Well, the cards themselves um, are very hard to find these days. And at one point, there were some letter collectors out there that were picking these up and stashing them away no matter who the player was. So I have searched high and low for these Ron Artest cards, and I only have one in my collection, or I did as of um, two weeks ago. It's one of the letter T's from the nameplate. And I know of one collector in Taiwan that has two or three for Ron. I know of another international collector that has maybe um, three or four. I've searched a long time with, with little success. Um, even, you know, I was able to track those down and those guys aren't moving them. Um, and then all of a sudden, a week or two ago, the full letter I from the name Indiana popped up on eBay and it started at a crazy high price. So first there was the initial shock of seeing it. Then there was the secondary shock of the insanely high price tag. Um, so I, I checked it obsessively for the next 24 hours and watched as the price crept lower and lower. Um, I kept up with the seller and eventually we were able to complete the sale. And anytime I find a super rare card of a PC player, I message the seller to see if they have anything else. And that's something that I would recommend you guys do as well. I found that simply asking questions can help unearth other rare cards. And he didn't have any more rare on our test cards, but he did tell me how he came to own this particular one. He said, I purchased a collection from an older gentleman in Corona, California several years ago while LeBron hunting. All just sitting, uh, this card was in there, all just sitting in a dirty garage with no future. He stated they were his sons and he no longer wanted them. He almost donated them, but luckily I rescued them. So um, Mac, and that was the, the new owner's name, if you're listening, I enjoyed messaging with you and I'm glad we were able to make a deal for this card. For those of you that are listening, I'll make sure and get that posted on social media if I haven't done so already. All right, 
Before I cover the ins and outs of 2005-2006 tops, I want to take a moment to tell you a little about Fanatics. As you guys know, there are costs that go into running a podcast, so I signed up for the Fanatics affiliate program. Several of you um, even purchased your WNBA prison boxes using my link, so I wanted to say thank you. Whatever sports gear you're looking for, there's a good chance Fanatics has it. So if you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod and click the Fanatics logo at the top. Shop as planned and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. Pod. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so Top's big game was just a small taste of what Top's had to offer us collectors in 2005. And I mentioned earlier that I felt this was one of the more interesting years in Top's history. And that's why I'm so excited to be able to look back and talk about it today. At the same time, I don't think 0506 was all that important of a year in basketball card history. In fact, when I talked about in the mid-2000s on episode 54, I cruised through it pretty quick. But while it wasn't all that important, it was a lot of fun. And to understand why, it helps to know a little bit of what was going on at the time. So, in the early 2000s, we had three major manufacturers producing NBA cards. It was Topps, Upper Deck, and Fleer. And while it was nice to have some variety, there just wasn't enough interest to keep supporting that structure. The market was oversaturated. On top of that, these companies were making um, some bad business decisions. So Fleer was struggling the most out of the three companies. And in fact, in late 2003, Upper Deck offered to buy them for $25 million. And Fleer turned them down because, quote unquote, business was starting to improve. Um, well, not enough. And come May of 2005, Fleer ceased all operations. They liquidated their assets, and eventually Upper Deck purchased the intellectual rights and the Fleer name for $6.1 million. That's a pretty big discount from 25. So then there were two. We had Upper Deck and Tops. Um, now, to be fair, there was a market for press pass and the college stuff. I've never been a big fan of college cards, but. Um, in 2005, they were the first new cards to hit the Beckett hot list. You had a pair of UNC Tar Heels at one and two in, in Marvin Williams and Rashad McCants. You, you got to remember, they had just come off of uh, a title run. And then uh, number one pick, Andrew Bogut, was number three on that list. Chris Paul um, had yet to emerge as the clear favorite of the draft. And even though CP3 stuff sold well, there were other rookies that were popular throughout the year. And Darren Williams was another one. I'll have a story about the two of them later on. Uh, but for right now, I'm going to say there were two big companies because I want to focus on just NBA cards. And um, each company approached this transition from a little different perspective. Of course, Upper Deck was anchored by strong athlete exclusives like Michael Jordan and LeBron James. So Topps wasn't allowed to create any cards that feature Jordan at this point. And then, because, um, you know, he wasn't active, they didn't have his license. And then even though LeBron was an active player, they weren't allowed to have relics or autos for him. So Upper Deck had that going for them. 
Um, and then in addition to the already popular high-end sets like Exquisite and Upper and uh, Ultimate, Ultimate um, Upper Deck started using some of Fleer's old licensing and, and reintroduced sets like Hoops and Greats of the Game. And I think this really forced Tops to think a bit outside of the box. And while they already had popular products, a lot of what they were doing in 2005 felt like it was going against the mainstream. Some people were receptive to it. Some people weren't. Uh, personally, I thought it was a lot of fun. And that's where I want to pick things up today. Their attempt to compete with Upper Deck in 2005 um, really had kind of three levels to it. Um, it was their athlete exclusives. It was their celebrity rookie cards. And then it was their reinvented lineup of products that combined old favorites and new ideas. So I'll go through them in that order. So let's start with the athlete exclusives. And athlete exclusives aren't really anything that were new in the hobby. I just mentioned that Michael Jordan and LeBron James were with Upper Deck. They also had Jay Williams in 2002. He was supposed to be the next big thing uh, before his motorcycle accident. Um, Fleer had tried it out in the past with Vince Carter and guys like, um, I think they had Dwayne Wade for a very short time in 2004. And then Tops had tried their hand at this before too. Um, in 2004, the top two draft picks were Dwight Howard and Emeka Okafor. Well, Upper Deck got Howard, Tops got Okafor. And Adam and I talked about this way back in our Zion episode, but a recurring theme of the 2000s was when faced with a choice between top rookies, Tops generally chose wrong. Um, in 2006, they went with Adam Morrison. And then in 2007, when Upper Deck got Kevin Durant, Tops aligned themselves with Greg Oden instead. Um, veteran players, however, were a different story. And two specific veteran signings that were new to Tops in the 05-06 season were Allen Iverson and Dwayne Wade. And they were often referred to as company spokesmen after this. And they even had spokesman-specific insert sets. And that term spokesman in the card world wasn't anything new either. Um, some of you that collected in the 90s, you might remember that Fleer had Jerry Stackhouse as a spokesman in 1995, and that was a big deal. Um, so this, you know, this term has, has been around for a long time, this idea has, but um, they really ran with it in 2005. They wanted to make a big deal out of these signings. So as for the Iverson deal, you can go online and, and find some of these announcement articles there's nothing groundbreaking in there, but it gives you the basic framework for what this relationship looked like. Um, according to one of those articles, the signing gave Tops quote, exclusive rights to Iverson within the NBA trading card category for autograph cards, memorabilia cards, insert cards, and the use of Iverson's image on packaging and advertising, end quote. Now, remember earlier when I said that it felt like Tops was going against the mainstream. And that's how a lot of people described Allen Iverson and his transition to stardom in the NBA. He was seen as a polarizing personality. He did his own thing. You know, everyone knows the whole practice soundbite, um, even though it, it was kind of taken out of context. Everyone knows that soundbite. Um, and then also a lot of people believe that the 2000, there was a, a new dress code in 2005, so this was fresh off of that. Um, a lot of people believe that was largely because of him. So he went against the mainstream. And like I said, I feel like that's what Tops was trying to do. 
Um, the NBA didn't want to market around the guy, but Topps plastered him on the cover of product after product. So Allen Iverson and Topps, in my opinion, were a match made in heaven. Um, the second signing that I mentioned was that of Dwayne Wade, and it was the same type of deal. Autos, memorabilia cards, and his image for packaging. And at this point, Wade was coming off a monster 2005 playoff run where he averaged 27 points per game over three rounds. So um, he wasn't, you know, against the mainstream so much as Iverson was. So I think it was a nice balance having um, guys that were kind of received differently, but also, you know, both stars, one was a a new star, one was an existing star. So overall, like I said, it was a good balance. Um, other star autographs that you could find only in tops in this time uh, in this time frame were Shaquille O'Neal and Tim Duncan, and they weren't actively including them in the new spokesman marketing campaign, but they weren't signing for anyone else, and the company was very strategic on how they utilized these signers. Um, so you know, I I really respect Tops for doing that. I thought that was something that was pretty cool. So overall. They did pretty well with their basketball veterans. Um, On the baseball side, they signed Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. In retrospect, probably not a good idea, but this isn't a baseball podcast, so I will move on. Um, All right, so in addition to athlete exclusives, Top sought to mix things up with a few celebrity signings. And Beckett Magazine did a Q&A with the Top's rep at one point. And they ask about the decreasing value of jersey cards. And Topps more or less said that they signed some of these celebrities in response to this because collectors were looking for something different and that included different subjects. Um, Upper Deck had tried this a little in the past, but the celebrities that they chose usually had a specific tie to a player that they were paired with. For instance, there's a dual Reggie Miller and Spike Lee auto from uh, 2003. I'd love to own one of those, but they're really hard to come by and they're really expensive. Um, And Upper Deck did use some outside personalities, I guess you could say. Really, they were ESPN personalities for the most part in their 2005 products. There was even a low-end ESPN product. I know I remember them having autographs for Kenny Mayne, Dan Patrick, and Linda Cohn. They were all in SP game used as well as Mark Cuban, a handful of NBA coaches, a um, couple Globetrotters were in there as well. So that was kind of um, both companies at this time were looking for outside signers to make things interesting. That was the route Upper Deck went. Top celebrities on the main hand, once again, were not as mainstream, at least not in 2005. And the biggest celebrity signing by far, and the one they spent the most effort promoting was Jay-Z. And I pulled out some old Beckett's when I was researching this episode, and several of them had two-page ads that featured Dwayne Wade, Jay-Z, and Allen Iverson. In fact, I posted them on social media this week, and they read, Our starring lineup, D-Wade, the CEO, the answer. Tops basketball, just when you thought you knew us. So Jay-Z was referred to as the CEO. It wasn't Hove... Uh, wasn't one of the other monikers he had used for a number of years. It wasn't part owner, even though he owned a, a very, very small share of the New Jersey Nets. It was CEO. And some of you might remember that he was um, retired from making studio albums, or that he had retired from making them at, at the end of 2003. 
and he later became the president and CEO of Def Jam Records. Well, in fact, that's what Topps put on some of his cards in place of a team name. It said President slash CEO Def Jam. And they marketed heavily around him. There were ads for the 2005-2006 Topps base product that um, didn't mention a single player. Instead, they said, Jay-Z, Topps executive celebrity spokesman, looked for exclusive Jay-Z rookie autograph and relic cards in upcoming Topps NBA releases. Um, now, I never pulled one of the autos. I did pull a printing plate in an old box of Topps Total a couple of years ago, but the autos were very popular, despite the fact that they were all stickers. And just as Topps intended, a lot of collectors saw it as something different. And even though he was at a different stage in his career, Jay-Z was a popular subject. The rest of the signings, though, the celebrity signings, left me scratching my head. There was Carmen Electra, Shannon Elizabeth, Christy Brinkley, and Jenny McCarthy. And I guess out of those four, Carmen Electra was probably the most popular in 2005. Um, you know, I know we were somewhat removed from McCarthy's modeling days, and um, I know she had been on MTV Shannon Elizabeth, I, I think, you know, we were a little bit removed from American Pie. Um, but I guess Topps was looking for a nostalgia factor. You know, I kind of wish they had spaced them out a little bit more, but it seemed like they were in every single product. Um, anyway, you know, whether they were relevant or not, they all gave permission to use their likeness. They all signed a bunch of the famous Silver Topps autograph stickers. In fact, the autos, just like the Jay-Z ones, sold well in the secondary market. And they all donated at least one pair of jeans to the cause. And when asked about the whole celebrity initiative after the fact, Topps seemed to have good things to say about it. Beckett Magazine asked, how successful have the top celebrities been this year? And Topps replied, they've been very successful. It's definitely brought mainstream attention to our basketball products. And it's something we plan to continue doing. It provides unique value to our products that collectors are looking for. Well, uh, for some reason, plans must have changed because they went from it's something we plan to continue doing to not featuring a single celebrity in any 2006-2007 base set. I know there were a few Jay-Z autos. I'm assuming those were leftover stickers, but that was it. And you can interpret that however you want, but um, I've never heard any official follow-up other than that. Either way... These celebrity cards, among other changes and initiatives, helped make for an interesting year for Tops. And I'd like to take some time to run through the release calendar. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about every set. Um, for example, there's not a lot I really want to say about E-Tops or Luxury Box, but I want to at least cover some of the things that stood out to me both then and now. So, the season started off with Tops First Edition and the regular top set, which were both released on the same day. And as far back as I can remember, every tops base set has had a very traditional look. Um, typically, it's a defined border. A lot of years included the team logo. I really liked the 03 and the 04 releases that led up to this. In fact, I think the 2004 set might have been my favorite of the 2000s. I just liked having that team logo in the bottom middle. Well... In 2005, Topps took that traditional look 
and added a bit of a modern twist to it. And if you look close at it, they mixed a graphic of a basketball with that of a star. I'm guessing this was intentional to go with the um, coming together of basketball players and celebrities. I thought it was ugly then. I still do. It's definitely my least favorite tops design of the 2000s, save for maybe 2007 when they went to a black-bordered base card. Um, the celebrity stuff was in there, though. It was new. Otherwise, there were no big surprises. One thing I liked, and this is something that was more common then, but guys that were traded in the offseason were photoshopped into their new uniforms. So two examples of that include Quentin Richardson and Kurt Thomas. And that's, that's a lot different than what we see in 2020, where guys like, I've mentioned this before, TJ Warren were pictured in a Suns uniform all the way until Obsidian or Mosaic. Um, and this top set, though, it still had the photo shoot autos that Tom and I talked a little bit about last week. But overall, it was a pretty standard, traditional release. And I think that's always a great way to start off a new season. Um, kind of like how Panini usually does with hoops. So... You know, what can I say? I'm a bit of a traditionalist. However, um, there were some new products in 2005 that really caught my eye, including one that came out in the second week of October that I talked about in today's intro, and that was Top's Big Game. Um, I talked a little about the patches already, but this card also featured base cards that showcased each player's career highs and specific stats. That in itself was pretty cool, but... I never paid any attention to it because I, I was all about the patches for me. There was selective swatches, which featured team logos um, and logo man patches, among other things. And then a set called In the Name, which featured nameplate patches. And, um, you know, nameplate patches maybe don't get a lot of attention now. Um, at the time, though, these nameplate patches were really, we called them letterman patches back then they were becoming more and more popular with other sports. And the first basketball iteration that I can remember came from 2003-2004 Flair Final Edition. Um, 2005 rolled around and the other two big companies jumped into the letter patch game. And if my release dates are correct, I believe Tops beat Upper Deck by two weeks because Big Game came out mid-October and SP Game Used came out at the end of, end of October. I will say, though, in terms of quality, the SP game you set is still the greatest letter patch set of all time, and that's because of the checklist. And there's only 10 guys, so I'll just read them off for you. Bill Russell, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Larry Bird, LeBron James, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Pete Maravich, Wilt Chamberlain, and Yao Ming. In fact, um, I saw Russell nameplate letter, a Bill Russell nameplate letter at the 2019 National. And I asked the owner, hey, you know, can I take a picture of this, of, of myself with this card? Um, because it's just stunning. It's a museum quality piece of history. I know I'll never own one, um, but I, I just wanted just to at least get a picture with it. Um, with that being said, and you know, even though I'm taking pictures of this other set of cards, uh, personally, I liked top selective swatches and in the name, I, I liked those sets better because they were more about quantity over quality. And when I say quantity over quality, that's not to say that the set was junk, but they didn't just restrict it to legends of the game. They had rookies, they had scrubs, they had stars, 
We're talking anyone from Kwame Brown to Karan Butler to Chris Webber. And player collecting was huge in the mid-2000s. And this allowed a lot of people to really engage with this product. Um, the checklist for it was huge. When you go online and look at the, the checklist sites, it, it's not 100% accurate either. Because, for example, the Pacers had Reggie Miller, Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest, Fred Jones, and David Harrison. For all uh, for some of these guys, I've seen both a home and away jersey in the set. Um, but none of the online checklists that I've seen actually reflect that. So it's hard to know without um, seeing what's been pulled. It's hard to know what's out there and what's not. Um, I want to say that these jumbo patches were something like one per case, but they were plentiful on eBay at the time. A lot of people were opening the product. Um, once again, I was only a window shopper at the time. I, I would save the pictures to my computer. I thought they'd never own one. Thankfully, I have come to own some over time. And before I move on from Top's Big Game, there's one more memorabilia set in there that I really like in Top's Big Game. It was called Final Score, and it features NBA Finals worn relics from the Pistons and the Spurs. Um, some of them also have autographs with them. I know there's a Tim Duncan um, sticker auto in there. That's really cool. I wish there were some prime pieces, but nonetheless, it's, it's always cool to own a little piece of NBA history like that. All right. Um, after Topps Big Game, we had Topps Bazooka, and this was the third and final year of the product. It was a good low-end product for kids and featured a lot of the same stuff as in years before. We're talking tattoos, bubblegum, stickers. Um, one nice thing, though, that Topps added was a hobby parallel. It was like a, it, I call it Bazooka Blue. A lot of people call it that. It was numbered to five. Um, the technical name for it is called Bazooka Fortune. Uh, but these are, you know, they're number to five. It's rare that they even pop up. A lot of player collectors from the 2000s are still looking for these. I'm still looking for the Artest. Um, that might be something that you guys could help me keep an eye out for. Okay, so after Bazooka, then we had another staple product in Bowman. I know some of you weren't collecting at the time. Bowman and Bowman Chrome were all part of the same product. And this isn't a perfect analogy, but imagine buying a, uh, packs of Donruss and getting a few optic cards mixed in. Um, and if you buy some of the current Bowman baseball products, it, it's still the same idea, minus all of the minor league prospecting, of course. Um, moving on, as much as I bragged on all the cool new stuff in Topps Big Game, there was one new set in 2005 that was way different than anything else, and it was called Topps. NBA collector chips and we just called them tops poker chips because that's what they were and um, this is something that was definitely a product of the times and tops was smart to try and capitalize on it poker was insanely popular in the early 2000s um, you know tops was asked about it in an old Beckett and they said when you turn on the TV it seems like poker's on every channel poker's huge and everyone's playing whether it's casually or competitively, we thought this was an item that people would like to have to play with or to collect. Um, and, and they were exactly right. I mean, poker was, the World Series of Poker was on TV nonstop. And that's when ESPN really bought in. And as you guys know, when ESPN buys the rights to something, they push it nonstop. So uh, poker became really big. And you could find these Topps poker chips at Walmart in the card aisle. 
They came in clamshells that featured five chips each. And just like a regular card set, there were base chips and parallels. Um, there were veterans, there were legends, there were rookies. There were rare, what they called auto chips, um, which were really cool. And I know some people that would buy these boxes at Walmart or Target and flip them for like $100 each. It wasn't anything like the chaos we see with retail um, today, but it goes to show that there was some flipping product back in the day. Okay, then we rounded out the um, 2005 calendar year at least um, with Topps Pristine, and, and eventually we got to one of my favorite products of all time, which is Topps Total. And this was the second and final year for Topps Total. Um... I know a lot of people probably felt like this was just a low-end product or an underwhelming product. It wasn't flashy. Um, if I hadn't opened it back then and didn't have nostalgic feelings for it, I'd probably be making fun of it today. But there were a lot of things going for it. Um, number one, it was cheap. And I feel like card companies need a good balance of low, mid, and high-end product as an added bonus, they weren't glossy, so they were great to get signed in person. The closest thing we've got to it in the Panini era was um, a two-year product called Panini Complete. Well, believe it or not, Complete was thinner, it felt cheaper, and it lacked some of the unique hits that we got out of Total. So I like Topps Total. Even if I hadn't opened it back in the day, I think Topps Total is a lot better quality-wise than Panini Complete. Um, another thing going for Topps Total was the large base set. The idea behind Total is that it was a huge set. I think the, the base set was 440 cards. Um, it included a lot of players that wouldn't otherwise be getting cards. This was great for team collectors like myself. Um, it included mascots and coaches. I love coach cards. I know I'm in the minority there. Um also, there were hobby-exclusive gold parallels numbered to 10, which can be pretty hard to track down. I've talked about those before. And then finally, um, each player had four printing plates for the front of his card and four for the back, making eight total plates for each player. So once again, there were some really obscure players. It gave them a bit of a chase that they normally wouldn't have. Okay, so that was Topps Total, and I can talk about Topps Total forever, but I'm going to go ahead and move on to Topps Chrome, which a lot of people, you know, Chrome stuff has really taken off lately. It's always been popular, but it's really, really gotten big, especially with the emergence of Prism. And Topps Chrome was one of Topps' longest-running basketball sets, having been around since 1996, uh, but 2005 saw some major changes in the checklist. And on top of the five celebrity rookie cards, Topps decided they would feature 55 players from the MBDL, um, which we called the D-League, and it's now the G-League today. It was the Developmental League. And just to put that into perspective, you know, it, was, it wasn't like prospecting, right? It wasn't, you know, always exciting to pull a D-League player and some of you might remember um, 2017 Prism featured coaches. And a lot of people were upset when their hits were coaches. Well, imagine if your one gold per box was, um, you know, and you were an NBA fan, was a celebrity or a D-leaguer. Um, you know, it, 
it was kind of a letdown. Although there were a few players that sold well, uh, I think one of them was Will Bynum because he was actually making a name for himself in the NBA. So that was kind of cool. Another interesting fact about the 2005 Chrome set is that um, the majority of the Jenny McCarthy base cards didn't get packed out and most of them have the center punched out of them. It's like a big rectangle that's punched out of the card, but they but they made their way into packs still. And tip, we don't see a lot of these, but when card companies do this, it means that there was some sort of licensing issue. So we've seen it in 2000 in football. Um, upper Deck MVP's LeVar Arrington card was punched out because he wasn't part of the Players Association at the time. And then... Um, in the mid-2000s when Topps changed their rookie card logo for baseball. There were several Alex, Alex Gordon cutouts because he hadn't actually played in a game and they were trying to include him on rookie cards and there were rules against that. So, um, But, you know, Jenny wasn't a, a basketball player, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, she was in the regular top set. I've searched for a good answer and have yet to find one. I've tried to reach out to Topps employees with no luck. Um, I do have a friend that has a pretty good theory. We just can't find proof of it anywhere. But um, So I'd love if somebody could verify it. But he said that on the back of these cards, Topps mentioned Playboy several times and talked about her being the Playmate of the Year. There might have been some backlash to that. Um, so Topps, you know, maybe because of that, punched the Chrome cards out so that verbiage wouldn't be on there. Because um, you know, on the other set, she was mentioned as an actress or a model, but they didn't go into specifics. So once again, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it sounds plausible. Uh, by the way, if anyone has one of those punched out Jenny McCarthy cards, I would love to add it to my collections. I like weird stuff like that. And I know there are some out there still. Um, one more quick Topps Chrome story that I've told before, but I figure I'll tell it again real quick. 2005 was the first hobby box of Chrome I ever opened. And um, I pulled a Chris Paul rookie gold refractor. And, um, you know, I didn't care much for Chris Paul at the time because, you know, he wasn't a pacer. So there was a lot of interest in this card. I wasn't used to owning really nice cards. So a lot of people were reaching out to me. And I traded it for a Darren Williams one-of-one Superfractor Auto, which was, you know, in my defense, another huge card at the time. Um, in my mind, one-of-one one is better than a card numbered out of 99, right? I was playing the numbers game. So I then sold that for $400 and some miscellaneous Pacers relics. Um, because I was in high school, I spent the money on stupid stuff like CDs. So I don't really regret the, the Chris Paul sale because it made me happy then, and it was so long ago, but every once in a while, I see one sell and kind of cringe knowing what could have been. So, Okay, so as time passed, we got Topps First Row and Topps Luxury Box. Those two products didn't do a whole lot for me, but there was a really cool product that came after that called Topps 1952 Style. And um, if, if you can't tell by the the title of it, 1952, there was a retro aspect to it. Um, Tops has openly acknowledged this before, but basketball retro sets just didn't do well. They had a Tops gallery set in 2000 that used the 1979 design, which was kind of ugly. Um, there was a heritage set in 2001 
um, that used the 1971 design, um, which I thought was a really cool throwback. And, and I like displaying the new and the old Pacers together. And then they tried one more time in 2001 with a, um, a 1974 tops design. I think one was in 2001 was 2001. And I like the 74 design as well, but it seemed like Topps just kind of gave up on the Heritage brand from there, which is a shame because it seems like it's a well-oiled machine in baseball now. And I don't know when they figured it out, but if you've noticed, they, they just go in order, right? So one year they might have 1963 Topps baseball, and then the next year, even if it was an ugly set, you know, they'll have 64, and then the next year they'll have 65. So it goes in order. Um, there's continuity. It helps the new collectors learn about old sets, and it's really nostalgic for older collectors. Um, I think, you know, it helps that more people collected baseball cards and they have a strong history. But if, if they had tried it with basketball, there's still a good 10 years that they could have used, and, um, you know, I think it would have went really well, but they didn't. Um, in 2005, they took a different route. Around this time, Topps acquired Mickey Mantle's intellectual rights, and they were putting them on a lot of baseball stuff. Um, I remember they were even, um, they had their Topps baseball box sets, and all of them, you could buy them at Walmart, Target, wherever, and they had a Mickey Mantle relic card as a bonus. But a lot of the relics were just random sweaters and shirts from his closet. But they, hey, you know what? They were selling, right? So they were definitely making good use of the mantle likeness. Um, you know, even in basketball, which seems tough at first, but they found a way. So when you think of Tops and you think of Mickey Mantle, you think of 1952 Tops. So Tops decided to make a basketball set with this design as well, and they included a, a card in there of Mickey in basketball gear. Um, there were also chrome parallels and refractors. Some of them looked really nice. I thought the blues looked great. The golds were awesome. Golds are numbered to 25, and they're still very difficult to track down. Um, it was just a really good-looking set, and they did it that same year with baseball as well. And I, I'm guessing it was designed to be a one-off, but it was a lot of fun. Um, in fact, I, I see a lot of collectors discovering it today. I saw someone that listens to the show was um, showing off a, a card on Twitter this week. It's just a great-looking card. Okay. Um, after Topps 52, last but not least, we had Topps Finest. I think I've said it on the show before, but some of the mid-2000s Finest were the, the closest equivalent to Prism that we had back then because it was the only chrome set that really expanded its rainbow parallel, or its, its parallel rainbow, I should say. Um, the 2004 Finest set had 14 different parallels as well as printing plates, that was a lot for 2004, but it seems like nothing when you compare it to 40-plus with Prism today. Um, and yeah, there were a few ugly ones. Like, I think some of the greens were ugly, especially for Pacers, but there wasn't anything that was really stupid, like some of the swirl and the disco neon stuff that we see with Prism today. So it definitely made for a fun chase. Well, the 2005 set had a similar feel. It had 13 parallels and plates, they expanded the number of golds to 39 for veterans, which was nice because they were a little more attainable. Um, there was also a really cool insert set in, in um, Top's Finest called Dress for Success, and it featured pieces of player-worn ties. And uh, I know some people hate that kind of stuff. I like that kind of stuff as long as they do it sparingly. 
Um, and it doesn't really get any attention today. I think that's more so because of the player checklist. There weren't a lot of guys in it. It was Andrew Bogut, Charlie Villanueva, Fabricio Alberto, uh, Joey Graham, and uh, Orion Green, and Dwayne Wade. So Dwayne Wade's the only one in there that's really worth anything. I was actually bidding on one last week and I lost, but um, it's something different. That's what Tops was going for. It would have been a lot cooler if we had some bigger names on that checklist. So overall, looking back on Finest, there was nothing crazy about the set, but it was a nice, consistent Chromium product, and it made for a good close to a really fun season for Tops. All right, now there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that. If you can't tell, I have a lot of fun memories from that time. I tried to pack them all in. I, I hope I didn't get too long-winded on some of the stuff. Um, I know earlier this year when I showed off the 2019-2020 Topps Chrome Auto that wasn't supposed to exist, a lot of people really didn't get the appeal of it. And that's fine. I understand it. You know, it, it was kind of an ugly card. But at the same time, it was a card that wasn't supposed to get out. And it was a faint reminder or, or a glimmer of hope that Topps could somehow make it back into the game. And you know, as I was going through all of these Becketts and researching from 2005, I came across a reader question that was pretty funny in retrospect because they asked, will Donruss and Playoffs start making basketball cards? And the short answer was, we can't imagine they wouldn't pursue this as an option. And Beckett also noted, it comes down to whether NBA properties and the Players Association are willing to take on another licensee. Well, what a difference a few years can make. As you guys probably know, Panini purchased Donruss and, and turned it into Panini America. Um, they acquired the exclusive rights to NBA cards after 2009, and the rest is history. I see a lot of people on social media ask, when are these other companies going to jump back into the game? And the truth of the matter is, the NBA chose to go with an exclusive license um, so, you know, it's really on them. And none of the other companies can pony up the money to take that away from Panini. They're not going to be able to outbid Panini. I also want to point out that the grass isn't always greener on the other side because Tops and Upper Deck made a lot of mistakes in their time, and I think they'd be making a lot of the same mistakes that Panini is if they were in the same situation. However, if 2005 Topps products are any indication, competition would probably force the industry to try some new things. Um, but it will be up to the NBA. And I actually reached out to the director of marketing on Twitter. I just said, hey, is there some way that I can get in touch with you? Well, right after that, she followed my account. So I DM'd her, and then I never got a response. So I made some progress, and then all of a sudden, um, nothing. Um but it's something I think about a lot, though, and it's something that I wish the NBA would at least hear us out on. All right. Anyway, maybe some of you were collecting back in 2005 and have memories about specific Topps products. Maybe you've come to love some after the fact. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe rate and review on itunes spotify or google play hit up the podbean site for a link to the merch store tag taco bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos 
out through my fanatics link and I'll get a small cut. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.